Before we open God's Word, let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you again and thank you again for the gift of your holy and inspired word. If we're honest, we are dumbfounded. You have chosen to reveal yourself to people like us, much less that you would continue to carry us along, draw us to yourself, that you would seek to know us and love us, that you would continually show us your mercy and grace. Would you come and do it again tonight? Reveal yourself to us, Holy Spirit, that we may know you, the one true God, that we may love our Lord Jesus with hearts filled with affection and warmth. Steal away the coldness the world has instilled and draw us ever closer to you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would do it for your sake. So we ask it in your name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Our text tonight is the first 11 verses of Exodus chapter 33. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Amen. So far the reading and hearing of God's holy and inspired word, may he add his blessing to it. Well, tonight I want us to start by remembering the whole book of Exodus so far. The people were oppressed in Egypt for a very, very long time, you remember. And the the longer they were there, the worse their oppression became, right? 
they cried out to the Lord. Remember the end of Exodus chapter 2? The Lord heard their cry, and He remembered the covenant that He had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord heard the cries of the people, and the Lord knew. They cried out to Him for deliverance, and He sent a deliverer. He, he raised up Moses to go in and, and deliver them from their bondage in order that they might go out and receive a land all of their own, a land that was referred earlier in Exodus, and now we see it again as a land flowing with milk and honey. And you remember, as they come out of Egypt, the Lord gathers them at this mountain, and He delivers to Moses instructions for their entire existence as His people. What will their life be as God's people delivered from bondage? And, and here on the mountain, He has provided it. It's His covenant with them. There's instructions. I mean, we've, we've been through it all. There's instructions for right um, relationship between people and God, right relationships between people and other people. There's, there's discussion of, of how they are to worship God. There's instructions for how to set up the tabernacle that will be in the camp of the people one day where God will descend and be among them as their God. This is, this is the covenant that God has made with His people Israel, and it is a covenant full of grace and full of mercy, full of kindness and compassion, just as our God is. He comes to them and says, I am the God who redeemed you, who brought you out of slavery. Now come, live, worship me, serve me, know what true life really is, and you will know blessing upon blessing upon blessing as you reside in this land flowing with milk and honey. You know, we, we might not think about it because oftentimes we think about Israelites and we think how dumb and stupid they were. But up until Exodus 32, the Israelites had it really good. I mean, it was great. Everything was working in their favor. All of it was moving in such a good direction. And then Exodus 32. Moses is up on the mountain receiving instructions from God regarding his right worship. And all of a sudden, the Lord breaks the news to his mediator that the people had rebelled against the covenant. That they have cut themselves off from the Lord and in their hearts contrived a new God for themselves and given Him an outward appearance as a golden bull to which they dance and bow down and worship. After all that God has done, how could they do this? After the signs and the wonders in Egypt, the plagues, after the tenth plague of the protection of the firstborn with the Passover, after their deliverance through the waters of the Red Sea and the decimation of their enemies behind them, after the, the manna and the quail, after all of God's provision, how could they rebel against Him like this? Have you considered this? What does repentance look like for a people like this? 
What does it look like for them to grieve this sin that they have committed, this great sin that they have sinned against the Lord? Is it possible for them to return back to God? Is it possible for them to, to turn their eyes toward Him again? And will God even receive them back? He spared no expense in bringing them out. He didn't hesitate for a moment to bring them out. He provided for them. He protected them. And what do they show to thank Him for it? They violate the, the most basic, fundamental principle of the covenant. You shall have no other gods before Me. They violate the one, the foundation, the commandment. What possible reason could the Lord find for allowing these people back into a relationship with Him? What about you? What about the sin in your life? What does, what does repentance look like for you? You know, we all have experienced all numbers of different transgressions and sins. We've all offended God in our own ways. You know, is, is it a long season apart from the Bible where it gathers dust on your nightstand? You claim to follow the Lord, but you ignore what He's given you in His Word. Is it, is it some form of theft in your work? Is it, is it your poor parenting where you're not really seeking to bring your children up rightly? You're just sort of trying to get through and, and maybe one day they'll they'll graduate and leave and you can have your own time back again. Maybe, maybe you dabble in pornography or are addicted to pornography. Maybe you've, you, you have a habit of hurting the feelings of the people that live in and around your home. Maybe you have exhibited unrighteous anger and raised voice and temper. Maybe you show distrust of God by, by continually offering Him shabby Sabbath practice. Is it possible? Is it, is it possible for people like us who have been known by God and still sin against Him, can we return to Him again? Can we come back another time after committing such treasonous offenses? Will He receive us back? Our hearts have gone astray just like they did in Exodus 32. What reason could the Lord possibly find to receive us again? This passage does two things for us. It shows us what repentance is. And in showing us proper repentance, it declares again to us the mercy of God for His disobedient children. It shows us what repentance is. And in doing so, it declares again the mercy of God for His disobedient children. And here's the end before we get started. Yes, indeed, it is possible for sinners to return to God. And yes, indeed, God will receive you because of His mercy. Not because of you. Not because of anything that you can do. 
not because of your repentance. God will receive you because of His mercy. Because of His persistent refusal to be rid of His disobedient children. God will receive us always when we return to Him. Because He will always be faithful to His Word and His promises that He's made to us in Christ Jesus. These next few chapters, 33 and 34 and, and into the beginning of 35, they really flow together kind of seamlessly. And even, even today, as I was starting to think ahead to what the next passage would be, we might actually start before the end of tonight's passage. We might actually come back to verse 8 and work our way down. I, it just all blends together. It's difficult to break the text apart. And what we'll see is that starting tonight, in these 11 verses, through the beginning of 35, the Lord is seeking to humble the people. He's seeking to, to, to put them low so that He might soften their hearts and humiliate them so that they might return back to Him as they see His mercy and grace and as they see, tonight we'll talk about it, the great danger and filthiness of their sin. He softens their hearts so that they might humbly repent and so that He might renew His covenant with them. That's where we're headed. But tonight we get this picture of repentance, at least repentance begun in the hearts of these people. Um, it's from our Confession of Faith and Catechisms, actually, that there's two significant components of repentance. You know, repentance is to turn. To turn away from sin and turn back to God. There's two components to true repentance. True repentance comes out of two realizations. One, a realization of, of the true sense of your sin, of its danger and filthiness and odiousness. And secondly, it comes from an apprehension of the mercy of God. A sense of sin and the mercy of God. And now that the dust has settled... The Lord commands Moses, you see it in the beginning of the, of the chapter, the Lord commands Moses to depart with the people. They're going to continue on into the land of promise, but the Lord will not accompany them. Look back at three. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Why won't the Lord go up with them? That's his new favorite phrase. You can go find it in Acts chapter 7. Stephen uses it as he accuses the religious leaders of his day. They're a stiff-necked people. And God's presence, listen, the presence of God is a threat to unrepentant people. It's a threat to stiff-necked people. I will not go up among you lest I consume you. Why? For you are a stiff-necked people. God's presence is a threat to people like this because God is holy and pure and He cannot dwell with wickedness. Previously, you remember He had laid out plans. and How many chapters did we spend talking about the tabernacle complex? He laid out all these plans to come and dwell not, not around, not sort of somewhere nearby, not in the next neighborhood over, but in the middle of the camp, right? 
He was going to be in and with his people. And we'll see at the end of this passage that, that for a little while he goes outside the camp to, to sort of be nearby. He had promised to be with them, but now he says, I can't go with you because it is a danger to you because of your sin. Three is a little, well, three is a little bit brief. Chapter, uh, verse 5 expands a little bit for us. The Lord had said, uh, excuse me, verse 5. The Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. For if, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. If for a single moment the Lord resided with them, they would not survive. You know, we probably... Well, it comes up once a year, I suppose, for most people. When was the last time you read Nahum chapter 1? Listen. Nahum chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way in, is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And rocks are broken into pieces by Him. God will not abide sinfulness. What does sin deserve? Death. Every sin deserves the wrath of God both in this life and in the one to come. Our larger catechism in number 76 declares to us that, that sin is, is dangerous and filthy and odious. Because of the Lord's wrath against sin, it is dangerous to you. Sin is a threat to you. For in the way of sin is death and wrath. Sin, sin is repulsive to God. That's what, that's what odious means. It, it, because of God's purity and His cleanliness and His holiness, sin is, is repulsive to Him. And here's the question for us. Do we believe this? Do we believe these truths about sin that are declared here by God, the danger of sin to unrepentant people before a holy God? You know, it's easy to think about God's wrath you know, strictly in an Old Testament context. You know, we have passages that clearly display it. You go back, go to Genesis 6, 7, and 8. You, you have the, the, the flood where he washes away all of the wicked people. Go, to, go a little bit further on in Genesis and you see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because not a godly person could be found among them. These are examples of God's wrath and of, of his curse upon mankind. But remember, we serve and, and love and worship the same God of the same wrath. 
It's not as if we get to the end and we turn into Matthew and all of a sudden the wrath of God dissipates and now we just have a God that's loving and kind and merciful and compassionate. The same God of the Old Testament who hated sin then, who who would pour out His wrath upon sin then, who would consume a people for their stiff-neckedness then, is the same God that we worship. And so we should, as His people, have the same attitude towards sin that He has always had. That it is dangerous and that we should steer far from it. Do you recognize the danger of sin? Or, Or has it, like the rest of the world, become commonplace in your life? Where it kind of happens once in a while and, and well, at least the times that we are willing to acknowledge that it's happened. It's happening all the time, isn't it? My heart is always seeking to be far from God. And, and by His grace and mercy, isn't He drawing us always along and, and the Spirit will see victory in the end, but our sense of our sin is that it's, it's always here and it's always a battle and it's always a war and I don't feel like I'm winning, but do we just let sin become common because of that experience? It is a danger to us. And when we find it in our lives, we should flee with every ounce of energy we can muster. We put ourselves far away from sin because the Lord clearly says that it is dangerous to us. But it is also odious. It's a fascinating word that the the vines choose to use. It means repulsive. It means repulsive. God sees our sin. You know, in ourselves, apart from Christ, and the holiness of God is repulsed by sin and wickedness. Christian, this is why you feel distant from God when you remain in sin. Not because God stops loving you when you sin, but but because God is displeased with sin, because it's repulsive to Him. This is... I mean... Why, why would the God who is light choose to dwell with darkness? Why would the God who is clean choose to be near filthiness? Sin is, is dangerous and it's filthy and repulsive. And this is the true sense of sin. It's, it's not something that you can overcome or that you get over one day. If I just have a few more years, one day I, I really won't have this trouble anymore. No, it's not something that, that's going to disappear at some point in our life. It's not something that God's going to ignore. It's not just a little thing that God's going to excuse one day. All have sinned. And so all have earned the wrath and curse of God. Sin is dangerous. May the Lord help us to have a true sense of our sin. Secondly, may He help us to have a, a true apprehension of, of His mercy. Hold on to these. We're going we're to put them back together in a minute. There's also this apprehension of the mercy of God that's necessary for true repentance, and we see it here. We see the mercy of God. While He had, while he had declared that He would not go as closely with them, they will still be granted entrance to the land of promise. Look at back at the beginning of the, of the chapter. Verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
saying, to your offspring I will give it. He says, I'm going to send an angel before you to drive out your enemies. You go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. What is he saying? He's saying, what, what I have promised to do, I will do. The land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will bestow upon their descendants. Now, we can all kind of read the irony in here and know that, that the people present in the congregation at this moment, in, in this particular day and age of, of Exodus 33, that generation wouldn't see the land, but their children would. He's not speaking about particular people. He's speaking about the people group. It's the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who will receive this land of promise. An angel will go before them to drive out the inhabitants, and, and the people will come into it. And, and you need to see here, this, this is the Lord's faithfulness to His people. Faithful to lead them into the land of promise. But now instead of of His presence going with them, He'll send an angel, right? I'm not going to go in with you. We may be inclined or, or, or there may be some in, you know, bent in our minds to think, well, this is not very gracious of the Lord to not go with them into the land. No, isn't it still very gracious of the Lord to send them into the land that He's given them? Isn't this what He promised to Abraham? A land and a seed. He has a great nation now before Him and He's going to send them into the land. It, w- it would be right for the Lord to abandon them altogether, to do what He talked about back in Exodus 32, which was to consume them and start fresh with a line from Moses. Alan Harmon says, God here, God was still prepared to continue to deal with the people in spite of their willful sinfulness. He was still willing to take them into the land. He was still going to fulfill His promise. You know, most of y'all get excited for hunting season, whenever it may be. In our house, we get excited for Delta Dairy season. You know, we'll try to visit once every week, maybe every 10 days, depending on how the season is at the moment. And admittance to Delta Dairy and the Ratliff family is not dependent on behavior at all. We may have a very disobedient day, but if Delta Dairy is on the schedule, you're going. You're going because it, it's, it's not about behavior, it's about your last name. If the Ratliffs are going to Delta Dairy, everybody's going, all right? Do you see the mercy of God toward His people that they have sinned a great sin against the Lord, but the people of Israel will still gain entrance into the land? Why? Because God has promised to take them there. This is the mercy of God. Not just faithfulness, but faithfulness in spite of our sinfulness. The faithfulness of God. His persistent refusal to be rid of His disobedient children. Not for their sake, you see. But for the sake of His good word, which He promised to them. And do you know that this this is why our only hope of salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is in Him that God has promised to save. 
not, not by your ways, not by some other religion's ways. Only in the Lord Jesus Christ is salvation to be found. Only in Him can we find salvation from sin. This is why. Because if you are Christ's, God has promised to save you. And even though you'll sin, and even though you'll look worse tomorrow than you did today, you'll feel worse tomorrow than you do today, you'll wonder why God still even thinks about you tomorrow and you thought about it today, God's mercy is always yours. Why? Because God, beloved, listen, if you are in Christ, God persistently refuses to be rid of you. All your sin and all your dullness and all your coldness, in Christ it does not repulse Him. He refuses to be rid of you. This is mercy. God's faithfulness in the face of our sin. And these together are the two components that lead Israel to true repentance. A, a, a true sense of their sin and a true apprehension of the mercy of God. So think about it. What will make them turn from sin? Well, on the one hand, for them to see how wicked their sin is. That it is what keeps God away from them. He's still going to honor His promise, but His presence will not be there. And you see how it describes them. They hear this disastrous word and they mourn. They do not put on their ornaments. You remember the ornaments? Not putting on their ornaments is, is, is the same thing as putting on sackcloth and ashes for these particular people. Do you remember the ornaments were the source of the gold that they bathed that idol in? And so their, their refusal to wear the ornaments is itself a, re, a repentant action in response to the idolatry that they displayed. That it is their way of saying what we did with that gold from our earrings was so reprehensible we will not even wear any more jewelry as, as a picture of how much we hate what we've done. And the Lord affirms it at the end of verse 5. He, he, he sort of, they've already taken off the jewelry or not put it on. He says, so now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. He's saying, listen, if this is real, if your repentance is true, then yes, take off the ornaments and I will consider what to do with you. And he does consider and he, re, he renews the covenant and we'll see that in the coming weeks. They saw how wicked their sin was, but on the other side of it, they see that God is willing to continue with them still. They see how kindly the Lord has reminded them that He will see them through to the end. And it is these two things, it's, it's a true sense of sin and an apprehension of God's mercy that lead people to repentance. See your sin, beloved. There's plenty for us to find. See your sin and see how dangerous it is. See how filthy it is before the Lord. But see God's mercy for those who rest in Christ by faith. And know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See that your sin does not turn God away. For those in Christ, the Lord is... is compelled toward us because He is tender and compassionate. His mercy seeks us. And as you see that, that sin is dangerous and that it, the Lord hates it, 
you, you turn from that. And as you see that the Lord is merciful, you, as you turn from sin, you're turning to Him knowing that he doesn't, he doesn't sort of say, oh, okay, yeah, you can come along with me. But He stands there with open arms because he, he, He's not far away like we imagine He is, but He's always right here. Always ready to receive us again. See your sin. See God's mercy and repent and turn to Him. It's the beginning of a beautiful reconciliation between the people and God. But there's still something going on here. There's still a distance. Even in this newfound repentance, even in the midst of God's mercy, there's still some chastisement going on. There's still what we'll call the discipline of distance. You see there that beginning in verse 7 through, through about, well, I guess it's just 7 and 8 mostly, that describe this tent. Where was God supposed to go and meet with the people? Well, they were going to take the instructions the Lord gave them. They were going to build the tabernacle and the Lord would come meet with them there. But instead, in light of the sin of chapter 32, it says Moses used to go outside the camp. Not inside the camp. He'd go far off from the camp, verse 7. And he called this tent the tent of meeting. And this is where the Lord would meet with Moses. And if the people needed to seek the Lord, if they needed to seek some advice, if they wanted to worship the Lord, they would go to Moses out there and Moses would go into God. And this is where the interaction would take place. This is where the relationship would take place. Even just the geographical move from, from the planned inside the tent to now outside the tent is a sign of God's continuing to chastise the people for the sin that they had committed against Him. He's not gone, but He's not near. You know, do you feel like this sometimes? You feel like God is, is far away. I think I'm one of His people. I've been one of His people, but God feels, feels far away. I want to say two things to us. First, I want to offer a warning that even as a child of God, your sin may bring upon you this type of discipline of distance. Our divines were very wise when they wrote our Confession of Faith and Catechisms, and they say this in several different places, but the one in chapter 11, paragraph 5, speaks most clearly to our context here says that God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of His countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith in repentance. You know, you may find yourself in a situation that they've just described, that by your sins you have put yourself at a distance from God. That you've come under His displeasure because of what you continue to do and what you refuse to repent of. If you are truly one of His, He will not abandon you. But there is a discipline of distance where God, so to speak, goes outside of the camp. He's not gone from you, but He's not near and this is good encouragement for us at the end of 
that if we find ourselves in these types of situations and circumstances and seasons, we should humble ourselves, confess our sins, beg pardon from our God, and renew faith and repentance. I don't know what it is. I don't know what things you struggle with in your life in particular. But be warned that even as a child of God, you may bring this type of discipline upon you, and it behooves you to seek the Lord afresh by faith and repentance and to turn away from sin. It's dangerous. And God, God hates it. Secondly, I want to offer some words of comfort. And actually, you could turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 in your Bibles, and we'll, well, we're close to closing with this. Sometimes this kind of discipline by distance, this kind of chastisement, well, let me rephrase. Always, chastisement of God's children is a benefit of your adoption by God. Listen, Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sometimes our cold days and sometimes the distance of God is because He's seeking to draw us closer to Him. And it doesn't feel good, but it always is good, you know. He's seeking to draw us back. And so I would encourage you as we close with those last couple of verses in, in verse 12 there. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And the Lord help us that we would be repentant of our sin and that we would seek His face and that we would be encouraged even when He stands at a distance from us, knowing that He's always with us always persistently refusing to be rid of his disobedient children. Amen. Let's pray. Father, come now and write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. We, uh, Lord, we're so weak and feeble. Would you come and help us that we may love you and cling to you, that we may trust our Lord Jesus Christ by faith and no salvation. Lord, teach us to turn away from sin. Teach us to embrace the discipline of distance that we may love you more. And do it all for your glory, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.